Well, thanks to the worship team for that. And you may want to get your communion elements ready as we prepare for communion uh, halfway through the message. So far through the last few weeks, we've been looking at the concept of living in the middle. And I want to segue away from that now because uh, many of us, our eyes are now towards the middle future about uh, transitioning out of isolation and so on and, and want to uh, really incorporate that into our own experiences of life. And uh, in this whole season of looking at what's going on in the middle space, the stuckness between what will be and what's gone before, we've looked at how the biblical writers were often living from a landscape mentality, not a dot on the horizon. And they took advantage of what was around them now. Life was all about who was there, what opportunities were there, what could they be about now, because tomorrow was just always so uncertain how much we could live from that. We looked at mission as well and that whole missional space and how we go into that and, and missions is continuing to grow and becoming a bigger and bigger part of what we do as well. And then last week, we looked at how to interpret the difference between uh, an interruption and a disruption. So now I want to have a look at the next side of that coin, because walking with God is a two-sided coin. And normally our personality will gravitate to one side or the other of that coin and emphasize one side, tend to de-emphasize, perhaps even devalue the other. And yet both sides of this coin are valid. One side of the coin is the waiting. We all experience waiting. We all understand the tension of waiting. But then the other side of that coin is the one day element, the and suddenly it happened sort of side of things. And we see this right through Scripture because in many ways, Scripture is sort of a highlight reel of moments where God intervened in an obvious and miraculous way. And so these times of wilderness and waiting come upon us. And there are things that happen in the wilderness that can only be learned in the wilderness. We have to go through those times because they're the times that build our character to prepare us for what's going to happen in the moment of suddenly. Uh, but these times of breakthrough uh, are just as valid and God is in the wilderness as much as he's in the breakthrough. He uses both and they're an important part of our life and we should hesitate to devalue either. Because, I mean, in reality, the fleshy side of all of us wants the breakthrough. We want the end suddenly. But the spiritual side of us tends to say, well, that doesn't always seem to happen. And so we, we, we work very hard at requalifying and re-examining Scripture to say, well, the end suddenly don't happen. But they do. They happen a lot. And they happen in the lives of normal, everyday believers like you and I. Sudden breakthrough, miraculous breakthrough, open doors, and so on. So I want to look at those together. And they're most beautifully described for me in one of my favorite scriptures coming from Hosea chapter 2, 14 to 16. Let's have a look at that. This is God talking about the Israelites as they were being led into the wilderness time. He says, Therefore, I am now going to allure her, talking about the whole nation. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. Okay, let's pull that apart a little bit because there's some incredible dynamics going on there in just those two little verses of God speaking directly into and about the situation of transition from wilderness into a door of hope. He had, he had called them into the wilderness. He'd said, I'm, I'm drawing them in. I allured her. I, I allured the whole nation into a wilderness experience in preparation for the open door into the promised land. That's the context of what he's talking about there. But then the wilderness turns into a door. The, the extended time turns into a moment, uh, uh, suddenly a then one day sort of moment. 
And we can see that life's not only about the tension, but life is just as much about the moment as well. And he defines it as converting the, the valley of achor, which means the valley of trouble, the, the valley of torment, the valley of hardship, a, a, an extended season of walking through the valley. And he's going to convert that valley into a door of hope, where hope is restored again. It's a classic then one day moment. We were like this for an extended time and then one day. And so this door, doors are a unique thing uh, in Scripture. God uses them very strategically and they're a sort of thing that only God can, can create and yet it's not just about what God does there. It's how we cooperate with that process. When God opens a door, God creates them, but only one person can walk through them and the handle, if you notice right through Scripture, if you do a study on doors, for example, you'll notice whenever God mentions a door in Scripture, the handle's on one side. One person can open and the other walks through. And so it's a very interesting dynamic. So when God here talks about the wilderness being converted to a door, He's saying, now I'm presenting you an opportunity. There's a one day, but I need you to walk through into that one day. And so these things represent sudden openings, um, sudden uh, significant shift in life, a transition from, from one space into an open door, a threshold into a new horizon, and so on. Uh, and they don't appear until the wilderness is done. It's not like the people can see the door off in the distance. The wilderness must do its job that only the wilderness can do, and then one day the door out appears in God's sovereign time. The scripture then goes on to say that she, meaning the whole nation, will respond. There'll be a response from the people to this door. And we can see there that these doors of opportunity, these sudden moments in life, they're, they're an interaction, not just a fabrication. Now, that's convenient language, but if you can follow me there, interaction means something happens and I get involved. God's done what only God can do. I do what only I must do. There's a, there's a partnership. There's an interaction going on. It's not a fabrication purely where God creates something and then something happens without our involvement and cooperation. So he instigates a moment where we can partner. God's grace does what only his grace can do. And then our obedience to that has to follow on from that. So... There's a relational shift that happens after that. He uses terms like, in that day you will call me husband, you'll no longer call me master. Through that open door, there becomes a significant shift, or it seems to symbolize a significant shift in the relationship aspect of this walk with God. So from husband, uh, it goes to being, um, sorry, from master to husband. It's like slaves to sons. It's like from treating him as our boss to treating him as our friend. There's a shift that goes on there. And it's significant to note because the wilderness experience has in itself done a conversion on our ability and our way that we engage with God and find Him in new ways. So as an example of this, rather than using the Israelites and the nation of Israel, I want to go back to the story of Daniel that we've been uh, sort of flipping in and out of over the last uh, six weeks or so and look at what happened in there and what must be, I don't know why, it's just one of my most favourite stories in Scripture and that's the story of Nebuchadnezzar and his wilderness experience and the open door that came at the end of that. So Nebuchadnezzar was nothing short of a megalomaniac. In, in our current context, we, could, we might even say this guy's just nuts. He's a nutty old uncle uh, king. He did whatever he wanted. There was absolute power. There was, he ran by absolute fear, intimidation, and unrestricted death. He could, he could sentence people to death on a whim, and, and that would be that. And so we find in this situation of, of total power, that power corrupts, absolute power, corrupts absolutely, as the old saying goes. And he was very proud of himself. The, the iconic 
sentiment about Nebuchadnezzar, this king of Babylon. He was the first major absolute ruler uh, depicted in Bible times in this sense. Even, even more than, say, the Pharaoh, who was still absolute king, Nebuchadnezzar did it with an iron fist and he was blatantly power-hungry and land-hungry. So he was on an empire-building strategy. He wanted to go global and, in fact, he did. And so he had a little bit, if you could say it that way, to be proud about. Uh, if you remember, that one of the wonders of the world, the ancient world, was the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. He created those. He built those and designed them. Uh, he'd been in power for 43 years, if you can imagine that, in those days, where the normal lifespan was measured in, in 30s. So he'd done incredibly well, as, as a human being could do. And he'd done it all the wrong ways, but he'd got there one way or the other. And so you see this picture in Daniel chapter 4 where Nebuchadnezzar is incredibly proud of himself. He's got no real God framework other than himself. And God calls him to account. And by this stage, Daniel's been brought into his life. And Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And I won't go into too much detail, but the, the short story is he dreams of a large tree. The tree is powerful and houses a lot of birds and fruit and, and cares for the land. And the tree has to be cut down. The proclamation from heaven says, I'm done with this thing. It needs to be dealt with. And so he goes to Daniel and says, what does this mean? And Daniel, it's an interesting relationship and all of us need a Daniel in our life. But so few of us accept what Daniel has to say. Daniel knows instantly what this dream is about. King, you're about to be judged. This, the way you're ruling is unacceptable to God. And so he puts his relationship on the line. And quite often, God will bring us a Daniel type figure. It's just a matter of whether they're brave enough to do their job because they've got to tell us what our relationship normally won't stand. They've got to tell us the hard truth. It's like the last 10% that we don't often come out with in a conversation. And he says, King, you've got to change the way you rule. You know, far be it that this dream would come true. You've still got a chance. If you can change your ways, uh, God may change his mind on what he's going to do. And so there was a 12-month gap. And then uh, Nebuchadnezzar finds himself uh, unrepentant. He's walking around the hanging gardens of Babylon one morning. And in verse 30 of chapter 4, we pick it up where he says this. Is not this great Babylon that I have built as royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? So it's at that very moment that the voice of heaven is heard audibly by him and it, perhaps by everybody else. The declaration, the judgment's there saying, Nebuchadnezzar, it's time for you to go into your wilderness. And the declaration's very clear and I don't want to bring too much detail because the story's not about sort of the judgment and the wilderness this time. It's about what happens next. But it's a very clear term that God uses in the declaration. He says, you're going to be sent away now for seven times. And this, word, this term seven is, um, really talks into completion, perfection. It's a biblical term you'll often see there where the number represents perfection. He says, this time that you're going into, it's going to, it's going to finish what it has to do. It's going to be complete. It's going to be perfect. And it's not talking necessarily about seven years. It's just seven times. This thing's going to go on, Nebuchadnezzar until the lesson's learnt. There's no shortcuts, there's no way around it. It's like that path we talked about last week. There's only one way for you to go here now. And so we have to navigate and the, the seven times can go on as long as it needs to go on uh, until he learns the lesson he needs to learn. And it's, it's like God's saying, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm not against you as king, but you just aren't ready to be king. I need to make you ready. And that's often what the wilderness is all about. God's not against us, it's not a punishment. He's saying, I want this calling upon your life to be fulfilled. You're just not ready for it yet. I need to make you into that calling. So that's not the focus of this message. What I want to get to the point of is the one day, the moment at the end of it. 
Because we all understand that the wait seems eternal, doesn't it? The wilderness just seems to never end and we can lose hope if we don't know how to process that. But there always comes, if it, is, if it is a wilderness time, and not everything we go through is a wilderness. Some things don't end, uh, but many things do. God's dealings evolve. They, they go through these seasons. And so if it's a wilderness and we're obedient and we learn the lessons through that, there will be a one day as well. Uh, so let's have a look at what happens in Daniel 4, 34 to 35, where he comes to the end of this moment. And let's have a look at why. It says, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does what he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? I'm hoping you can feel the change of heart there. There's been a, a significant lifting away of pride. He's not exalting self now. He's exalting God. And in that moment, uh, whether, you know, coincidentally or not, I don't think it's any coincidence, but it's in that moment. I think it's in those thoughts that catalyzed the very open door. He's been rescued from himself, as we looked at last week. And the key phrase there is what he said about himself. He said, I raised my eyes to heaven. And this is a mark of humility gained. See, God didn't start his work in that moment. The door opening, the end of his trial, didn't start, wasn't the start of God's work. God was working the whole way through. Uh, God had been working covertly for seven times, uh, it turns out, but he was working before that. He was working in the dream, in the warning. He was probably working before that to try and bring this guy around. Uh, he was working in the dream, he was working before, he was working after, and now he's about to work in, in catalyzing this open door. And these one-day moments, such as Nebuchadnezzar was about to go through, where he came back into his fullness of king and, and became, in his own vocabulary, greater than he was before, they, they take all sorts of shapes and sizes for us. We want to, we want to confine these to say the open door is, is a, a blessing of finance or career upgrade or something like that. But it can be things like a sovereign meeting of two lives. I'd love to have a sharing of how, say, my wife and I, maybe spouses out there have met, was just a sovereign moment where God brought two people together. But it can be a phone call of, of sort of unthinkable opportunity uh, that takes us into a whole new path in life. It might be a healing. It might be a deliverance. It might be a life-changing encounter with God. Uh, just a time where He just, by His pure grace, just comes in, invades our soul and changes us forever. It could be a moment where a relationship's been restored or a, or a breakthrough in our thinking, a revelation of God's goodness where suddenly all that happens in the world doesn't matter anymore. It could be a, mom, a moment of salvation where we just surrender our heart to God. These are all one days. These are all, I was like this before, then one day things became very different. And they are the moments that we can share with other people. These are the testimonies that catalyze change in other people's lives, incredibly uplifting, hope-filling, faith-giving moments. And in a moment, I'll give opportunity for us all to share those if you've got one online. But now let's slip into communion and just reflect on that for a moment. Communion, the way we share this, is the ultimate remembrance of a one day, the biggest one day, the day where Jesus was crucified, where his life paid the price 
for our death that we should have had. He did that for us. He went to the cross and did what we could never do, what we could never earn. He paid the price for our sin. And for thousands of years, people had been waiting for the Messiah. They weren't necessarily waiting for a saviour. They didn't know that was a package deal. They were waiting for someone to overthrow. They were waiting for someone to take over and fix all their problems. And in many ways, we can still be doing that as well. But we've got to understand that, especially in these one day moments, because they're often not what we expect. If we want to pick up what God has for us, we may have to let go of what we think he should have been doing for us. And so to pick up Jesus as saviour, they had to let go of this idea of Jesus being their Messiah, their overthrower of governments. And so they expected this one day to be a time of overthrow. But for him, it was a day of salvation, of, of kingdom and of eternity. And so during the hundreds of years before the cross, they had assumed God wasn't working. There's no voice, there's no prophetic voice coming out. But in that whole time, God was working as he is now in your life, as stuck as you may feel. God is at work. He was reordering the whole geopolitical landscape of the world, bringing Rome in and the Pax Romana that made roads open and a way clear for the gospel to go out and be shared. And so when Jesus broke the bread, he was ushering in this one day moment because the one day had come. He'd emptied heaven to pay such a huge price just to show us the size of the price that God's willing to pay for his will to be done. So as we partake now of the bread and the juice together, let it remind us that God will do anything to achieve what he has in mind to do. And yet it's for us, even as grace comes, grace needs to be appropriated by us. We need to receive it. And so breaking this bread together and drinking the juice is us remembering the broken body and the blood that was shed. Let me pray and then we'll share together. Father, I thank you for doing what we didn't expect, for being more than we could ever imagine. This is who you are. This is what you do. You're bigger than our greatest dream. You're greater than our, than our father's expectation. You are our hope and you are the giver of hope. Thank you for the blood that was shed. Thank you for the bread that symbolizes this body that was broken for us. We thank you and we embrace it in faith in Jesus' name. Let's eat and drink together. In our one day moments, it's almost like the whole world can shift on its axis. I hope you've had an experience of them or, or can look forward to some of them happening in the future. And it's not wrong to hope for that. I know we talk a lot about hope in the midst of things that don't change, but some things do change and they change miraculously and it happens all the time. These one day moments, and it's right through scripture, so we can't deny that they're there. You know, one day in the lakeshore, Peter encounters Jesus, the boat's full of fish and he's and he's wading back with probably eyes like saucers as he realizes he's in the midst of God. His life changed in that moment. I have called you to be a fisher of men. It was one day. I was like this. Now I'm like that. It can be like the meal that Jesus had with Zacchaeus. The, the moment of salvation where he suddenly it inverts his life and he's giving money that, that might have been won inappropriately and giving it back to the poor and so on. It could be the one day that we just celebrated on the cross that changed the whole world. It could be the day like Pentecost that achieved in one moment what thousands of years of religious man-made effort couldn't produce an empowered believer that overflows in mission. It could be something like the poor lame man that encountered uh, Peter and John. Silver and gold I don't have, but in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. He'd been lame all his life and then one day he encounters men who bring him Jesus. One day is very scriptural. One day has happened in our life. 
and I hope that your life experiences them. They've certainly been experienced in my life. And look at what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Let's look at what unfolded for this guy. It says, he says of himself, at the same time, my, at the same time my sanity was restored. What same time? The time he looked to God. At that same time, his sanity was restored. My honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and my nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. It's pretty sort of egotistical language in our day. We wouldn't want anyone but uh, a US president to say something like that. But for him, it's his language. It's saying everything that I had before, the splendor of this rule has been restored. But what I love about this was that his nobles and the people of the court sought him out. He was still in the field and they came to him. And uh, the machinations of politics don't work like that. It's very hard when people are fighting for power and, and people are positioning themselves, they don't suddenly get a dose of grace and just want to go and, and find this guy in the field and bring him back. God was at work. They sought Nebuchadnezzar out. And I've had that experience too. And I wonder if you have where people have just come into your door and that's been the one day catalyzed right there. You couldn't manufacture it. Life wouldn't normally manufacture it. But God has moved in the hearts of people that they would seek you out to do that. This is really how I got in the ministry. I'd, I'd spent years trying to make it happen. That didn't work. I'd given up and then spent years running away. But it was really God working in the lives of people that, that knocked on my door, that sought me out. And, and once that door opened, the wind of God just blew me through it and I couldn't escape getting into ministry. But there's been other times as well, significant healings that you just couldn't make up, major physical healings. There's been deliverance, there's been inner healing, there's been all sorts of things where God seems to have just moved mountains to have his way done. And it's just so faith-building for us to hear those stories. And I'd love to, over the next few weeks, have some more of those come out. And the, the irony is, we don't earn those days. We don't, it's not transactional. It's not like, well, I've done this and now God's obliged to do that. You know how much I talk about that. And yet there is a dynamic where we need to position ourselves for them. It's a bit like a vessel uh, that has to be filled. And the vessel is our heart, but we can't fill it, but we can cup the hands of our heart to receive the blessing that God has for us. And just as we can cup our hands to receive, we can also have a posture of our heart that puts our hand up to not receive. We can almost, it's like we can push away God's grace. I mean, humanity is expert at that, isn't it? And this is what happened early on with Nebuchadnezzar. He was given the opportunity, but his hand was up to God saying, no, this is me. I've done this in my own strength. And so you can see there that, that pride is like a hand up to God saying, no, thanks. I'm going to do this on my own. And Nebuchadnezzar says, of this, uh, says about this himself. He says, those who walk in pride... God is able to humble. A consistent theological principle seen right through the New Testament. Humility actually invites blessing. James says God lifts up the humble, but he opposes the proud. And so you can see this dynamic where God opens a door, but we have to be in the posture of receiving what he has for us. So we can do it through pride. We can do it through uh, dogged unbelief, a determination not to believe. And it sounds almost... Uh, not feasible for Christians to do this, but, but our, our residual lack of faith, our expectation sometimes that God won't do that in our life, can just it's almost like putting your hand up to God saying, I can't bring myself into alignment with what you want to do or the way that you're thinking. But look at the basics, even at the level of salvation. Ephesians 2.8, we're saved by God's grace. It's his job to save us. We can't save ourselves, but it's, we're saved by grace through faith. We 
have to believe. We have to rely on that grace. We have to cup our hands and say, yes, I can't do it on my own. I receive that grace. We can put a hand up by, by um, you know, not needing God, living in a way that doesn't rely on Him. We can do it by living a life of self-justification where we just say, no, I'm, I'm good as I am. There's all these ways that we can oppose God in that way. But you can start to see the difference between this idea of trying to earn blessing and just posturing ourselves to receiving blessings. And ultimately, we've got to leave the shape and the timing of our one days up to God. But we can be responsible for forming our heart in a way that says, I'm receiving that blessing. That's a heart of faith. That's a heart of thankfulness. It's a heart of expectancy without expectation. It's a heart that's free. It's a heart that's able to receive and love God no matter what happens, as we've seen over recent weeks. So we should always be thankful. We should always be open, regardless of whether there's an open door or not. And we should be able to forgive people quickly. We should be able to return to joy and just live life well. And when those one days come, enjoy them and give glory to God, even as Nebuchadnezzar had done. In great seasons or hard seasons, we should have hearts that are expectant. It's normal to have a wilderness. It's normal to have a one day as well. I look forward to hearing your stories about your one days. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to flesh this right out. And so uh, as we close off today, uh, this part of the day, I'd just love to pray a blessing over you that you would have faith, not only to wait for your one day, but to see it and walk through those open doors. Father, I just pray for everyone watching today. Lord, I pray your greatest blessing upon their life. I pray that they would see you, that Lord, they would have a revelation in their hearts of how good you are, regardless of what circumstances say. And Lord, give them the faith that there are one days even for them, where, Lord, you shift heaven and earth to have your will be done. Bless them with those open doors in Jesus' name. And bless you, everyone. See you again soon.